Sanofi, Pfizer, Glaxo, and Merck. Those companies in 2009 have paid $35 billion in criminal penalties and damages, um, civil damages, et cetera, for falsifying science, for lying to regulators, for defrauding doctors and public health officials, and for killing hundreds of thousands of Americans. Our next guest is the son of U.S. Senator Robert F. Kennedy, the nephew of President John F. Kennedy. He's a graduate of Harvard University, studied at the London School of Economics. He received his law degree from the University of Virginia Law School and got a master's degree in environmental law from Pace University. He was named one of Time Magazine's Heroes for the Planet, and he's authored or edited 10 books, including two New York Times bestsellers. His articles have appeared in all the mainstream major publications, but he is also the founder of Children's Health Defense, one of the leading groups pointing out the dangers of the COVID so-called vaccines and the unbelievable yet verifiable path that led us to our current global crisis. His latest book, The Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health has just come out. Stay tuned to hear from Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on this episode of The John Henry Weston Show. Before we begin, I wanted to ask a favor. Could you please subscribe to this channel? like and share this video and encourage others to do the same. You know, with all the censorship that we are receiving, we need you to take action to beat back censorship by spreading the truth. Thank you. Robert Kennedy Jr., welcome to the program. Hey, thank you very much, Henry. Let's begin as we always do at the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Your book... Uh, is just a complete tour de force of basically everything we've experienced in the last year and a half explained in a way that is accessible. And boy, oh boy, does it does it paint a picture. Um, I wanted to start off with something that, of course, is very current in the news right now. Um, Dr. Fauci is all over the place now for one of the very first times in our last year and a half with some negative publicity, uh, negative publicity that's going viral, whether the mainstream media like it or not. The admission of the NIH of the puppy experiments where puppies are put with their heads inside mesh and sand fleas eat them to death. This has caused uproar all over the place. You discuss uh, this kind of thing in your book, uh, it, and it's not only this. Um, what can you tell us about that? That he spent millions of dollars not only on the puppy experiments, but you know many, many other very almost uh, sadistic, uh, not almost, but extremely sadistic. You know, one, another one of the experiments that I talked about in my book is that he was taking scalps from fetuses, from fully developed fetuses. And um, removing the the scalps from the skin from the top of the heads of fetuses, and then transplanting and planting it onto humanized rats, 
in order to test uh, hair um, uh, hair sprays and and uh, shampoos and those kind of things. The thing I think people need to talk about, think about it, is they were spending millions of dollars on these experiments, and with all of the desperate needs for public health in this country and all of the good that that kind of money could have done. He chose these experiments as the best use of taxpayer dollars. And it's really kind of frightening. You know, those experiments are described in one of my chapters, a chapter, an early chapter, which I call the Dr. Uh, Dr. Fauci and Mr. Hyde. And the much more disturbing parts of that chapter are his experiments on children. Yeah. He wasn't just experimenting, doing these really horrifically sadistic treatment experiments on animals on behalf of pharmaceutical companies. Um, but he, he had also arranged to essentially take over foster care homes and in seven states, and including one in New York, um, called uh, Incarnation House, where they were taking Black and Hispanic children who did not have parents, whose you know, parents had disappeared and they had turned into the foster care system. And they had taken over one foster care hospital in New York and essentially turned it over to the drug companies to use chemotherapy drugs on children to treat allegedly HIV. As it turns out, many of these children did not have HIV. They were never tested for HIV. They were just testing to see whether these chemicals were so strong that they would kill you. And they ended up killing, I think, about 85 kids that we know about. There is a graveyard in Hawthorne, New York, where these children are buried in mass graves. And they're uncovered graves. They're in essentially a pit that is uh, filled with tiny little coffins stacked one on top of the other. And there is a there's a, a, a bunch of small gravestones with literally over a thousand names on them. We don't know where those kids come from. What was killing children besides Tony Fauci? We don't know. We don't know. All of them were from Fauci's experiments. We know that a number of them were. Cecilia Farber, who is a friend of mine and who did research on this book, who's a great journalist, actually went up and visited the Gravestock Graveyard and correlated the names of some of the children on that plaque with the children who were the subjects of Tony Fauci's experiments. The kids did not want to participate. They were punished, really, in a way that was very sadistic. They refused to take the drug. Uh, they were sent to Columbia Hospital, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, where they would have feeding tubes installed if the kids spit out the drugs. They didn't do what they were told. And the drugs were pumped into their bodies. The drugs made them feel horrible. And the conversation, some of these conversations were, some of these children were interviewed by BBC back in 2004. Um, for a, uh, a show that they did a documentary called Guinea Pig Kids. And the, you can now watch these interviews without crying. These 
are these sweet, sweet little kids who are saying we didn't want to take the drug. Anyways, go ahead. And I had to warn, you know, this little 12-year-old kid who's saying, I had to warn nine-year-olds that if they didn't do what they were told, they would get it. Any um, a feeding tube like me, and he chose his belly, and he has a tube sticking out of it. And these are kids again. There weren't many of them that weren't even sick. Um, and at that point, there were congressional investigations, and uh, Tony Fauci's agency was cited for conducting these experiments illegally without proper guardianships appointed for these children. It was all completely an outlaw enterprise where he turned these children over to these big pharmaceutical companies to do whatever the heck they wanted. And he should be in jail forever. If you see the interviews with these kids, you will say, why is this man still walking around free? I should mention uh, your book, The Real Anthony Fauci, its subtitle, if you will, Bill Gates, Big Pharma and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health. Because i sure what, what people have just heard leaves them breathless, mouth open, but also perhaps disbelieving. This is a very heavily referenced book. There's, there's so many notes to, to go by, references to go by. We also did something really unique, which is we have QR code where people can go to the end of the traffic chapter, look at the end notes with their, um, you know, using the, the, their cell phone or the QR code and go right to the articles that are cited, right to the interviews, right to the sources of everything that's cited. There are 2,200 footnotes in the uh, book. We had a whole team of fact checkers who, you know, really worked for months, really of doctors, scientists who read the book repeatedly. Of course, it's a long book, and it will have some factual mistakes in it, but, you know, it is, uh, I think they're going to be few and far between any time that you write 250,000 words, um, some of that, you're going to make mistakes on, but all of, we made every possible effort to make sure that whatever mistakes are in the book are very, very minimal and that, you know, and we had a um, you know, we had some of the, literally some of the world's leading scientists read the book, including the Nobel Prize. That comparison in the beginning, it, the, the biggest media outcry we've heard so far about Anthony Fauci has been over the puppies. It's very much like Al Capone going down uh, because of tax evasion. Because to me, anyway, that comparison is so apt. And you've just shown it with all with your examples of absolute horror of, of what's what else went on under Fauci's watch. However, I wanted to ask you, your book is vast. Uh, as you said, it's just unbelievable. The footnotes are there, which is going to be an amazing reference for uh, for people, especially for researchers and writers who are going to follow up on it. I know that's coming in a big way. Um, word is on the street that uh, Fauci's actually very alarmed by this. Um, and it comes at kind of a providential time. The NIH confirmations of these horrific puppy experiments come at the same time as your book is being released, which is just, <laughs> that's just divine providence in my opinion. Um, because it's so vast, I wanted to ask you, what is probably the most important revelation that you make in your book? NIH has admitted that they were funding data function experiments in Wuhan. And somehow they said at the same time, Tony Fauci told the truth about it, and yet what he said was a lie. Oh, 
uh, it's one of those uh, those uh, regulatory paradoxes. I think the most probably the most important chapter in the book is a chapter called uh, Germ Games, and it's the chapter that talks about the simulations about how they planned is lockstep imposition of totalitarian controls on our society and how they planned in advance for 20 years they were planning and preparing to use a pandemic a global pandemic to basically as a pretense for a coup d'etat against democracy to, to obliterate our bill of rights not only in this constitution but civil rights and human rights and western liberal democracies all over the world in australia Canada and Western Europe. And what happened is, you know, I kind of stumbled on this story because I was looking at it in 201, which most many people know of. And you can go on the uh, internet today and look up Event 201. Event 201 was a simulation, pandemic simulation. That was sponsored by Bill Gates and by the CIA, by Avril Haynes, who was the other co-host, who was the deputy director of the CIA. She's now, um, she's now Biden's director of national security, the highest level spy in the country. Haynes and, um, and, and Gates put on this simulation in October of 2019 at the Air Hotel in New York City. Now, you have to remember, October 2019, the virus was already circulating. So the virus, as best we can guess, began circulating on September 12th. And in 2019, we didn't really learn about it until January. But it was already circulating in Wuhan. It was by, by the end of October, it had gone to Thailand. And then it ended up in Italy, you know, in um, by December. So, so during, after the virus already circulating, they do a pandemic simulation. And what is the pandemic simulation? It simulates the, um, a, a international global pandemic from a coronavirus that has escaped from a lab. And what they're talking about in this simulation, and they have people from the social media companies there, they have people from the pharmaceutical industry, they have people from the mainstream media, and they're not talking about how to improve public health. They're not talking about how do we get vitamin D to people, how do we get people to exercise, to go outside, to reduce stress, to, uh, to develop repurposed drugs by communicating with frontline doctors all over the world to figure out what the best protocols are. How do you quarantine the sick so that the healthy can continue working? How do you protect public or uh, uh, constitutional rights during a pandemic, which is always a concern? None of that was discussed. It's what everything they talked about was how do we use the pandemic? to transition to a police state permanently. One of the techniques that they use, one of the, um, one of the programs that they almost certainly funded, and I found all the CIA links which are explained in the book, to a, a, an experiment that was conducted in Yale University in the mid-1960s called the Milgram experiment, which a lot of people have heard of. The Milgram experiment, it was a 
young Yale sociologist called Stanley Milgram, and he had actually the first place he went to funding was to be a naval division that was part of the, operate, uh, the CIA's MK Ultra program. And his mentor at Yale and City University of New York was the head of that program, which was deeply involved with MK Ultra. And Milgram recruited subjects from every block of American life. So he brought in construction workers, he brought in students, professors, business people, blacks, whites, it was cross-section of America. And he would take the subjects, sit them in a room with the only other person in that room was a doctor or somebody who called himself a doctor in a white lab coat, wearing a stethoscope and that kind of, you know, basically saying, I'm a doctor. And the, the subject was asked to turn a dial, which would send an electric charge to a person who was strapped in a chair in the neighboring room. He could not see the person, but he could hear the screams, the pleading, the crying, the begging. And they, the higher they turned it up, the louder the screams would be. So, and the, it, none of these subjects, almost none of them, wanted to do it. There was a general reluctance, not, not 100%, but most of them were really reluctant. In fact, some of them were begging and pleading and crying to the doctor to allow them to stop. And the doctor would continually tell them, no, now turn it higher, now turn it higher. And 67% of the people, anybody can go look this up on Wikipedia, it's called the Milgram experiment. 67% of the subjects turned it to 450 volts where it was marked potentially fatal. So they were administering a shock that they thought would, might kill the person in the next room because a doctor told them to do it. And what Milgram concludes at the end of that paper is that authority, authoritative voices, can Trump will trump in 67% of Americans will trump conscience and deeply held values. Things that you care deeply about, that you believe yourself incapable of doing, you will do it if 67% of people will do it if a voice of authority tells them to do it. And this was happening all over the world. So people today look at how did all these governments, Canada, uh, Australia, all the European governments, Germany, France, Italy, England, suddenly think in lockstep overnight without any reflection, without any consideration. How do they all decide at once to simultaneously impose these authoritarian controls and, and conduct this coup d'etat against democracy? Well, it's all in those simulations, but we're training exercises that we're teaching them all. This is what we're going to do when it happens. And, you know, what Milgram figured out is that voices of authority can get you to override and overrule your conscience, and they can overrule your, your capacity for critical thinking, which is a, a critical asset in democracy to completely allow you to embrace cognitive dissonance to allow you to simply not ask questions. And not only that, but become very angry 
with anybody who does ask questions or to, who are asked to look at other evidence that's contrary to what that guy's telling you. And it becomes almost a, a religious, you know, we're hardwired um, toward, toward orthodoxy. We're biologically hardwired for orthodoxy because it was a selective advantage during the 20,000 generations that humanity was wandering the African savannah small warring groups who allied who had to, for their survival, obey and follow the, the directions of a, of, a, of a powerful male leader and do what they're told and look at the outsiders as dangerous and, you know, and people we can do anything we want to. And so, you know, we all have that in us and that capacity to overrule our critical thinking. And I mean, the bad news is that 67% of people in our country will do what they're told. And that 33% is the good news, will not. 33% and these are the people who are your listeners will say, no, I'm gonna ask questions. I'm gonna preserve our constitution. I'm gonna fight for freedom of speech. I'm gonna fight for freedom of religion and for jury trials and all the things. And that, you know, our country is here because during the American Revolution, there was a generation of Americans who said, we're not going to do what we're told. You know, we're going to think for ourselves and we're going to create a constitution that makes it safe for people in America to, to think for themselves and to speak their mind and to share information. And because of that, we have the constitution that in one year, under Tony Fauci's leadership, we were given away. There's so much we could talk about. Your book is extensive. Uh, the the profit motive, the unbelievable profit motive is there. Uh, we see the profit motive, but people find it so hard to believe that the powers that be, Tony Fauci particularly, Bill Gates as well, but that they could actually go ahead and do what they did knowing their profits will come to them, massively so, but it will actually cost the lives of countless people on earth. I, it, you lay it out so clearly, um, but it, it's like people think to themselves, could, really, could people go ahead and, and just cost the lives of countless tens of thousands of people on earth in order for their own profit? You know, Tony Fauci, you can't look at him as a public health official. He is a pharmaceutical developer. I think between 2009 and 2016, there was something like 240 drugs that were approved by FDA that all came out of Tony Fauci's shop. But he does, he used that money, you know, the $7.2 billion that he gets from the military and the US taxpayer not to do public health, not to find out where, where is the autism epidemic coming? Why do we, why is it that in my generation, one in 10,000 people have to have true autism, a full-blown autism, non-verbal, non-toilet trained? Um, and, uh, and in my children's generation, it's one in every 22 boys. Why did that happen? It has to be an environmental toxin. Genes don't cause epidemic. Why did food allergies suddenly, why did autism suddenly appear like that? No epidemic in 1989. What happened in 1989? What happened that made food allergies suddenly appear in 1989? Celiac disease, peanut allergies suddenly exploded. And, you know, I had 
11 siblings and 70 first cousins, and I never saw a food at anybody with a pain allergy. And yet my kids all were allergic to butter eczemas. I don't care why they're all these autoimmune diseases. Suddenly appear rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile diabetes, lupus, um, Graves disease, Crohn's disease, and on and on and on, D and Beret. Um, why did this all happen in that year? You know, there, there's, uh, there's an answer to that question, and it's a, there's a limited number of candidates. Is it because we exploded the vaccine schedule from the three vaccines I took as a kid to the 72 that are now required of my children? Now, by the way, every one of those diseases. There's 420 of them that, it's, that have gone epidemic. There's 170 that are all uh, on epidemic. And those are among the 420 diseases that are listed on vaccine inserts as side effects of vaccine. Is it that? Maybe it isn't. There are other suspects too. We're, our kids are swimming around in a, a toxic soup now. Life is a appeared around that time to round up and pesticide and became ubiquitous. You have to find something that became ubiquitous in 1989. Um, ultrasound, Wi-Fi radiation from cell phones, PFOA flame retardants, and there is there's probably five or six others. It has to be one of those. It has to be an environmental toxin. What is it? Why did our children go from six percent of having chronic disease? When Tony Fauci came in to 54% now, his job is to answer that question. Has he ever done a study? No, none. He will not allow those studies to be done. Not only does he not fund them, but he can prevent them, and that's what he does. He doesn't want, want us to know what happened because he is developing pharmaceutical drugs. And, those pharma and his, oftentimes, his agency owns the patents on those drugs. For example, the Moderna vaccine, his agency owns half that patent. He stands to make billions and billions of dollars from that patent of, of, of a drug that he developed. He ran through the approval process and that he now is promoting and that he's protecting by killing its competitors. Like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, all the early treatment. Now you say, well, of course, nobody would, you know, put human lives at risk for profit, but look at the pharmaceutical industry. These are the people who gave us the, the same companies that are making these vaccines are the same companies that gave us the opioid crisis. They're killing 56,000 American children a year. They knew it was going to happen. We know that because we have their discovery documents now. And they decided to do it anyway. This is, you know, the four companies that make all 72 of the mandated childhood vaccines in this country, Sanofi, Pfizer, Glaxo, and Merck, those companies since 2009 have paid $35 billion in criminal penalties and damages, um, civil damages, et cetera, for falsifying science, for lying to regulators, for defrauding doctors and public health officials, and for killing hundreds of thousands of Americans. Vioxx, which was Merck's blockbuster drug until 2006, killed between 120,000 and 500,000 Americans. And Merck knew it was going to do that. 
it's it's an incredible book. The the descriptions, for instance, from Switzerland of the uh, removal of HCQ, uh, the period very short period of time where deaths skyrocket and then come back when they put when they allow it again. The data is incredible, but I think one of the plaguing questions for me is what happens if Fauci goes down right now he's in a bad way there's a lot of evidence coming out the <laughs> like we said about the Al Capone thing and the tax evasion the 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 puppy things is bad for him that's bad press coupled with your book coming out now which is just absolutely hair-raising and when people get a hold of the evidence for it and are able to look up everything and say oh my god God, he's actually correct on this stuff. What if Fauci goes down? What do you think is going to happen? Is the, is the whole mechanism going to go down? Are they going to put up another person? I don't think so. Those institutions are just the, the corruption and the pharmaceutical agency entanglement of those institutions is pervasive. And they're likely to, they're not going to appoint somebody like me to run, you know, those agencies that, you know, somebody who's knowledgeable enough to know how to um, dismantle the corruption. They'll never, they're gonna pull somebody from the inside who is part of the system and it will continue. Until we have really, you know, um, you know, I think we need really strong change from the top, somebody who is, um, you know, somebody not only who is uh, courageous, but also who understands uh, how these bureaucracies work and how corruption um, becomes entrenched in the bureaucracy and how, you know, what do you do? Because you need to have public health. Um, you need to have public health regulation. How do you separate the, uh, you know, the, the parts of these bureaucracies that have become captive by the end? captured by the industry that they're supposed to regulate. Um, how do you separate those from the parts of the agency that you need to safeguard the public health? Right now, I would say that it would almost be better for our country, it would be better for our country if FDA, WHO, and CDC simply did not exist because they're so badly corrupted that they pass the intersect where they're actually doing more harm to public health than good. So what is your message to America? You really, really your message to the world right now, what we need to do uh, in, in the short term right now and uh, what we can look for if, if we're able to do what we need to do, uh, what's a better picture look like? I think what we're going to end up doing is really having to build our own institutions to talk to each other, to communicate um, and to resist, you know, building schools and, even hospital and medical systems that are not part of the, you know, the pharmaceutical paradigm and that um, where, you know, we can build kind of alternative shadow institutions of every kind, even like I said, even schools, where people can educate their children without submitting them to these um, medical interventions. Um, and we need to build uh, news links, which is happening. We need our own television networks. We need, you know, to rebuild America from, uh, from beneath. And, you know, a democratic country that is um, where there's freedom of speech and where we can, uh, we can mobilize resistance 
to reestablish our constitutional rights in this country. And we need to convert as many people as possible from that to 67%. How do you do that? I talked with his psychiatrist, whom I really respect this week. And I said, how do you break through and somebody who's completely subsumed in orthodoxy? Um, and he said, well, the way that you do it is um, you do it with compassion and with empathy, but above all, you don't make a direct attack on their belief systems. You don't challenge their belief systems. Instead, you use the Socratic method and you ask them to explain, and you ask questions. Well, it's an amazing thing. Uh, the Real Anthony Fauci, the book by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Thank you so much for being with us uh, on this program. And, you know, thank you for this work. I, I think it's a, it's a great work. And you've given us a roadmap. You've given us the evidence that we need to go forward. May God bless you. Thank you very much. And God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to lifesitenews.com because there we will always be. But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to lifesitenews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of LifeSite News reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop, even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parler, MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.